Hi, I'm Ursula Wake. And I'm John Atack, and this is Lyrical Wax. And today's theme is John Keats, the um, English 19th century romantic poet. Um, February 23rd, 2021 is the 200th anniversary of his death. So it's a good time to look at him. So he's um, he was part of a group of poets known as romantic poets there were two it's a strange um or rather it's a puzzle how the word romantic started to become attached to that movement there were two generations of romantic poets and writers um and it's work that from um that was published round about the first third of the 19th century so yeah so the first generation <clears throat> of um other romantic poets were um Wordsworth, Coleridge, um Robert Southey, William Blake, um and Charles Lamb and William Hazlitt. Um and then Keats and Shelley and Byron belonged to the second generation. Um all the first generation uh had success during their lifetime out of the second generation Byron did, but Keats and Shelley didn't really. And most of the first generation outlived the second generation because Byron, Keats and Shelley all died very young. Um, so... Byron was phenomenally successful financially yes. for um, his poetry. It was the biggest selling part mm. of his time and poetry mm. was a major form. But I don't, mm. think, I don't think Blake made very much money. He kept losing his patronage, but... Mm. But he he had some success, success. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, maybe more for his pictures than his writing at the time. I'm not sure. But um, well, he was engraving and publishing copies of his own books, but mm. he, he had patronage briefly. Mm. Yeah. But they, but yeah, so they're the first generation of romantics tend to have in general did have more success and build up more of a reputation mm. during their lifetime. Mm. Um, whereas certainly Keats and Shelley are people whose reputation has um, grown posthumously. So the way in which the Romantic writers were different from what came before was that they wanted a change of content and a change of form. So um, the 18th century work that was very much about, um, a lot of it was about... Um, external thing, universal things, etc., um, was spurned in favour of writing about your own experience, about individualism, about um, things based on the imagination, etc. Um, although some people like Shelley were still writing about, was very he was a, an idealist of, um, and was very interested in philosophy, so it's about the individual in society, but nevertheless... It was about the individual. Um, Shelley is, um, is one of the first people to call himself an atheist. Mm. And so he, he in, in fact, was sent down from Cambridge for writing The Necessity of Atheism. Ah, right. And the other aspect of, of romance, of course, is, is nature and the, you know, the overwhelming, the awe of nature. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that came into um, German painting more than English painting, I would say. Perhaps. Friday, yeah. But um, yeah. yeah, 
but that's a slight aside, um, the, the painting thing. But yeah, we'll be um, coming across some of Keats' responses to to experience. And he he's um, very much somebody who lived in it um in his own and in a very deliberate and determined way lived through his own imagination and verbalized it as he was going we think of it i think a lot of people think of it of it as a very modern idea to write quickly rather than planning and because we see all these forms and these sonnets and and rhyming couplets etc etc and so we have this idea nowadays I think a lot of us that there was a, an awful lot of planning that went on but actually Keats was somebody there's a lot of evidence to show that he wrote things very quickly he did then go back and do some drafting and and a lot of people would say that each time he did him they were good improvements um, but nevertheless he verbalised his experience in, in quite um, intense and sometimes hurried ways um, and to bear witness to his experience and sort of in a very heightened way. So we'll be coming across um, quite a bit of that. So, yeah, I just want to say something about Keats' relationship with Byron and Shelley because they're very often thought of as three people together um, and they they did um, so Keats and Shelley knew each other a bit Shelley and Byron had a lot more to do with each other that's a um, different thing but um, there's some examples of um, Keats relationship with Shelley and Byron here so in a letter to his brother George um, Keats had obviously been um, George had obviously been writing something about Byron and Keats writes to him you speak of Lord Byron and me there is this great difference between us he describes what he sees I describe what I imagine mine is the hardest task yeah so this part of um, his letter shows there's clearly some rivalry between them the rivalry was felt more on Keats part than on Byron's and I think um, Byron probably didn't have to worry too much about what Keats thought about him um, when it comes to Shelley <clears throat> they started off being quite critical of each other's work um, and again Keats had a keener sense of resentment towards Shelley than Shelley did towards Keats um, as we'll see so after Keats first publication Shelley wrote to Keats about it. Um, it was a piece of work that had been criticised by quite a lot of people and Shelley had this to say about it. In poetry I have sought to avoid system and mannerism and Keats replied you might curb your magnanimity and be more of an artist and load every rift of your subject with awe. Um, O-R-E not A-W-E. Um, so they were quite critical of each other. However, when Shelley found that Keats was very ill, um, he invited him to stay in his house in Italy, thinking that he might um, might find it easier to live there and, and he might find it easier to get better there. Um, and Keats refused. When Shelley did die... He drowned. Um, a copy of his po of Keats' poetry was found in his pocket. 
So despite some conflict between them and some criticism, mutual criticism of their work, Shelley obviously had something of a soft spot for him. Um, okay, so we're going to we're going to look at things um, chronologically um, through Keats' short life. He died at the age of twenty-five from consumption. So tuberculosis. Yes, yes, that's right. TB, tuberculosis, consumption. Um, born in London, died in Rome, where he had gone to try and get better. He, as a teenager, he became an apprentice to a surgeon, and he was expected to um, continue that and to earn his li living as that. But he'd been very encouraged about his poetry by some people, by some friends, Um and so he decided in the end to give up becoming an apprentice to the surgeon and focus on his poetry, for which financially he uh, may have he may have regretted that decision financially. He struggled throughout his short life for money. Um, but while he was still um, an apprentice to a surgeon, um, somebody has found this very short early poem on the subject of... Women, wine and snuff. Give me women, wine and snuff, until I cry out, hold, enough. You may do so sans objection, till the day of resurrection, for bless my beard, that I shall be my beloved trinity. Mm. Keen on his snuff, eh? Keen on his snuff and his women and his wine. Mm. But actually compared to a lot of people, there's very little evidence of him being that kind of person. He was a lot more solitary than that suggests, I think, mm. not as an extrovert, because that's that suggests what we might term a party animal nowadays. Yeah, um, which he wasn't. And he wasn't. Um, but that was just a scribbled little thing. But I thought we'll start off with that. Why not? Um so the next one we're going to have we're going to have is pause while I find this. So this poem is called this poem is called Fancy, and that is word at the time for imagination. And the world of the imagination, as um, briefly mentioned before, is incredibly important to Keats, um, and he likes to spend. A lot of time allowing his imagination to run riot and this is a poem that describes that and describes how domestic routine ordinary everyday life um, and repetition and um, a standard way through the day just doesn't work for imagination so imagination or fancy requires something else so it's quite a long poem, like a lot of Keats's poems, so I'm going to read bits of it. Ever let the fancy roam, pleasure never is at home. At a touch sweet pleasure melteth, like to bubbles when rain pelteth. Then let winged fancy wander through the thought still spread beyond her. Open wide the mind's cage door, she'll dart forth and cloud would soar. Oh, sweet fancy, let her loose, summer's joys are spoilt by use. 
when the sear faggot blazes bright, spirit of a winter's night, when the soundless earth is muffled and the caked snow is shuffled from the ploughboy's heavy shoon, when the night doth meet the noon in a dark conspiracy to vanish even from her sky. Sit thee there and send abroad with a mind self-overawed, fancy, high commissioned. Send her. She has vassals to attend her. She will bring, in spite of frost, beauties that the earth has lost. She will bring thee altogether all delights of summer weather, all the buds and bells of May, from dewy sward or thorny spray, all the heaped autumn's wealth with a still mysterious stealth. She will mix these pleasures up like three fit wines in a cup, and thou shalt quaff it. O oh, sweet fancy, let her loose, everything is spoilt by use. Where's the cheek that doth not fade too much gazed at? Where's the maid whose lip mature is ever new? Where's the eye, however blue, doth not weary? Where's the face one would meet in every place? Break the mesh, of the fancy's silken leash, quickly break her prison string, and such joys as these she'll bring. Let the winged fancy roam, pleasure never is at home. Um, so that's some of his um, feelings about imagination. One of the things, and I think that poem is um which again is an early poem written 1816 so he was um about 20 that gives a very good idea of something that to me is one of the pleasures of keats one of the main pleasures apart from some of his turns of phrase are just astonishing there is something about the kinds of sounds that he uses and the rhythms that he uses and he uses so successfully that when you read them out, there is something so satisfying, far more than a lot of poems and poets, I find, that um, it reminds me, when I read it out loud, it reminds me because I can't sing. So joining a choir isn't something for me. But people talk about singing as something that's, or there's almost something self-regulating about it because it regulates your breath and it feels amazing. And I think that Keats is one of those poets that reading out loud does a very similar thing. And it's something that um, for a lot of people we do sort of nowadays as a society, certainly in the UK, we don't do much reading out of poetry mm. anymore or as individuals. We don't, um, it just doesn't happen. And I think it's something Keats to me is one of those reminders that that is something that's, that's lost. Yeah, and there is a tremendous pleasure in reading out loud. I, mm. I can remember being at school and you know, being eleven or something, and we were reading uh, Julius Caesar, mm. and I just loved this taking the word from the page and reading it. And I think with poetry that it's always sensible to read out loud, to, mm. to read yeah. it to yourself by all means, but read it out loud and feel the music of the words. Mm. Mm. Um, and it, you're into a, a different territory. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why, and so in some of the um, 
other episodes on this channel. There are little bonus videos where I've read something out in another language because I think sometimes just the musicality of the words is is enough in itself to to listen to. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the next poem was written in 1818. Um, as I've already said, Keats lived just till the age of 25. He died in 21. So, um, and he was already ill um, and was ill for quite some time. He um, And part of his illness um, was to do with what we would nowadays call stress probably he had so both his parents died so when he was nine and when he was 15 his brother um who he was very attached to died of tb consumption um and john keats nursed his brother and spent quite a lot of time with him and was very affected by his illness and subsequent death um also, being somebody who was quite solitary and who was determined to live through his imagination, um, sometimes that imagination went in um, slightly, uh, I suppose, I'm, I'm hesitating to use the word negative, but negative directions. Um, so this poem talks about fears, anxieties, etc. When I have fears that I may cease to be. When I have fears that I may cease to be, before my pen has gleaned my teeming brain, before high-piled books in charactery hold like rich garners the full ripened grain, when I behold upon the night's starred face huge cloudy symbols of a high romance, and think that I may never live to trace their shadows with the magic hand of chance, and when I feel, fair creature of an hour, that I shall never look upon thee more, never have relish in the fairy power of unreflecting love, then on the shore of the wide world I stand alone and think, till love and fame to nothingness do sink. Thank you. Um, the next one is a poem about the first time that he read a particular version of the Odyssey and the Iliad, which sounds quite niche, I think it's fair to say. Um, so this was written in 1816, and this is an example of a poem that Keats wrote very quickly. So he'd been given um, a book but um, he'd been given um, a copy of a translation of the Odyssey and the Iliad um, that was translated by somebody called George Chapman. And the kind of language in it was something that appealed enormously to Keats. And he and his friend sat up all night reading various bits of this. And um, the next morning he wrote the basis of this poem very quickly, though he, some, he later edited it. So this is On First Looking Into Chapman's Homer. 
Much have I travelled in the realms of gold, and many goodly states and kingdoms seen. Round many western islands have I been, which bards in fealty to Apollo hold. Oft of one wide expanse had I been told, that deep-browed Homer ruled as his demean. Yet did I never breathe its pure serene, till I heard Chapman speak out loud and bold. Then I felt like some watcher of the skies, when a new planet swims into his ken. Or like stout Cortez, when with eagle eyes he stared at the Pacific, and all his men looked at each other with a wild surmise, silent upon a peak in Darien. I love that line. I, I, the idea, I felt like some watcher of the skies when a new planet swims into his ken. So he was, so this was something that felt so new to him. It really had a massive effect on him. He, in his, in his hurry to write this poem, he did actually make an error. We're not sure whether he then decided to just keep it in or whether um, he just never became aware of his error. So the conquistador Cortez was not somebody who found, who did sort of worked his way over the, to the Pacific. That was um, Balboa. Um, so that was a mistake. Maybe it just just happened to scan because Balboa's three syllables, Cortez two, and he needed a two-syllable name. Maybe it was that, or maybe he just wasn't sure. But um, anyway, yeah. Yeah, we shouldn't say anything pleasant about Don Cortez. He was an evil, evil man. But um, it's it, it interesting because um, those famous public school boys, which to Americans is private school, mm. confusing here, uh, Genesis, of course, uh, adopted the term Watcher of the Skies for one of their early songs. Ah, did they? Yeah. Ah, there are all right. sorts of references to Greek mythology in, in their songs because they, you know, they're posh boys. <laughs> Except for Phil Collins. He wasn't a posh boy. Was he not? No. Okay. <laughs> so the next poem is called Isabella or the Pot of Basil. And it's a long narrative poem. Um, John's just going to read a bit of it. And the story comes from um, a story in a group of, group of stories called the Decameron, which was a medieval collection of stories written by somebody called Boccaccio in Italian. Um, that became, the stories became quite well known. Um, so the story is this. Um, Isabella is supposed to be, is somebody who is supposed to be marrying some highborn nobleman but she falls in love with somebody called Lorenzo who who is not a high-born nobleman. Um, when her brothers discover this they murder him to ensure she cannot marry him. As you do. And uh, probably quite successful in preventing her marrying him. Um, probably. She <laughs> probably yeah. Do you take this woman? <laughs> yep. So poor old Lorenzo has had a bad enough time of it, but also Isabella then decides that she can't bear to be without him. She finds out what's happened, finds his body, cuts his head off and buries it under a basil plant. So she then keeps the head in the pot of basil and uh, cries over it and mourns it. 
Fair enough. As you do, I think that's mm. as your phrase would be. Um, then her brothers aren't quite sure what's going on with this pot of basil, so they take it to find out what's going on. They find his green rotting head underneath the pot of basil, realise that they that she knows what's happened. So they scarper, flee Florence, um, banish themselves, which... Um, yeah, I'm not sure if they banished themselves. They just escaped. I don't think they were punishing themselves. Took the pot of basil with them. Um, so she is left without, not only without her lover, but without the rotting head that she was um, so keen to have. Mm. So she ends up pining away. And as a gardening tip, um, using a rotting head to grow basil is not generally recommended. I don't think basil really needs that. You can grow it in quite poor soil, I think. Once soil that drains well, you don't want yeah. anything too rich. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No human heads in there. Don't try it at home. Um, so the first two and the last. And the last, yes. Okay. So um, extracted from uh, Isabella, or the pot of basil. Mm. One. Fair Isabel, poor simple Isabel. Lorenzo a young palmer in love's eye. They could not in the self-same mansion dwell without some stir of heart, some malady. They could not sit at meals, but feel how well it soothed each to be the other by. They could not, sure, beneath the same roof sleep, but to each other dream and nightly weep. With every morn, their love grew tenderer, with every eve deeper and tenderer still. He might not in house, field, or garden stir, but her full shape would all his seeing fill. And his continual voice was pleasanter to her than noise of trees or hidden rill. Her lute string gave an echo of his name. She spoilt her half-done broidery with the same. And so she pined, and so she died forlorn, imploring for her basil to the last. No heart was there in Florence but did mourn, in pity of her love so overcast. And a sad ditty on this story born, from mouth to mouth through all the country past. Still is the burthen sung, O oh, cruelty, to steal my basil pot away from me. So, you know somebody who's got a pot of basil? Let them keep it. <laughs> Let them keep it. And probably don't look at yeah, what's don't. underneath. <laughs> it's a very big pot. Be very careful. Um, okay. So. There we go. Thank you. So the next poem is one of um, Keats's famous odes. He wrote quite a few odes. Um, mostly in 1819, he had a phase of writing odes. Um, and they are they're quite long, some of them. And nowadays, they seem quite alien, um, I think in the sense that there's an awful lot that is said about something apparently quite minor. However, 
I think a, a lot of poets will start off with something quite small and niche um, and then expand. There's, there's a lot to be said, a lot, a lot, a lot, and it expands outwards. Um, so Ode to a Nightingale is one of the ones. We won't be reading it today. Um, but that is far more than just a poem about a bird. Um, this one is on a Grecian urn. So a Grecian, an ancient Grecian vase. And Elgin had stolen parts of the Parthenon and had brought various bits of ancient Greece um, illegally back to the UK. And in eight, that happened in 1801. Um, and so the... And, there was a whole start of sort of finding bits and pieces of the, the ancient world and deciding we're going to bring them back to England and uh, other places. Um, and so this was happening in Keats's lifetime. It was part of um, his learning about the world. And looking at, if, if we think of um, the kind of paintings um, that are very often on Greek vases, but we're not the pornographic ones for the moment. We're, there are plenty of pornographic Greek vases um, in the world, but we're not talking about them at the moment. Not at all. We're not even <laughs> mentioning them. <laughs> well, when I, when I said, if you think of what's very often on a Greek thing, then lots of people might have been thinking, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't until I saw them in the Getty Museum, just case after case of this thing. But we're not going to mention them. <laughs> I did once, but I think I got away with it. So, exactly. um, so this is a poem that is looking at um, either a specific Greek vase or maybe imagining a Greek vase and asking himself, what is all this about? What are all these um, scenes about? Um, and saying that actually there's something almost more beautiful about the something being captured and still and then always there than if it were a scene that was actually happening in front of him. So um, the people who are doing the things that they're doing on the, the urn, that's always going to be true. It's always happening um, rather than something that comes and goes kind of Kodak moment yes yes um and then the the ending of it is uh, I, th I think is one of the um very famous bits um but it is something that seems quite alien as I say but I think it's one of those again when it's read out there's something just so beautiful about it um, so I'm going to read the whole thing. Ode on a Grecian Urn. Thou still unravished bride of quietness, thou foster child of silence and slow time, sylvan historian who canst thus express a flowery tale more sweetly than our rhyme. What leaf-fringed legend haunts about thy shape of deities or mortals or of both? in Tempe or the dales of Arcady. What men or gods are these? What maidens loath? What mad pursuit? What struggle to escape? What pipes and timbrels? What wild ecstasy? 
Heard melodies are sweet, but those unheard are sweeter. Therefore, ye soft pipes, play on. Not to the sensual ear, but more endeared, Pipe to the spirit ditties of no tone. Fair youth beneath the trees, Thou canst not leave thy song, Nor ever can those trees be bare. Bold lover, never, never canst thou kiss, Though winning near the goal. Yet do not grieve, she cannot fade, Though thou hast not thy bliss. Forever wilt thou love, and she be fair. Ah, happy, happy boughs that cannot shed your leaves, Nor ever bid the spring adieu. And happy melodist, unwearied, Forever piping songs, forever new. More happy love, more happy, happy love, Forever warm and still to be enjoyed. Forever panting and forever young, all breathing human passion far above, that leaves a heart high sorrowful and cloyed, a burning forehead and a parching tongue. Who are these coming to the sacrifice? To what green altar, O mysterious priest, leads thou that heifer lowing at the skies and all her silken flanks with garlands dressed? What little town by river or seashore or mountain built with peaceful citadel is emptied of this folk, this pious morn. And little town, thy streets forevermore will silent be, and not a soul to tell why thou art desolate can e'er return. O attic shape, fair attitude, with breed of marble men and maidens overwrought, with forest branches and the trodden weed, Thou, silent form, dost tease us out of thought as doth eternity. Cold pastoral, when old age shall this generation waste, thou shalt remain, in midst of other woe than ours, a friend to man, to whom thou sayst, Beauty is truth, truth beauty, that is all ye know on earth, and all ye need to know. Beauty is truth, and truth beauty. Yeah, there are mathematicians who still believe that, but I think they're probably about the only people on earth <laughs> that if a theorem looks beautiful, then it will more likely be right. But it's a very dangerous assertion, personally. Um, yes. And he's moved on from from wanting wine, women, and snuff. Yes, just absolutely. before he snuffed it, you know, he, yeah. he got into. Uh, Vases, basically. Yes, and we sh right. should say that the attic shape that he's talking about mm. is Athenian attic, meaning Athens. Yeah. Not oh, the shape I, of his loft. Oh, I thought, yeah. Oh, I thought it was. I thought it was one of those, a room with that you can't quite stand up in. Yeah, ah, I there think you that go. is how most people take it these days. <laughs> okay. So the next one. Um, so this is another ode. Um, it is an ode on indolence. Um, so this is very similar to the poem that I read. The, the poem isn't similar, but the, the ideas in it to some extent are similar to the poem that I read about fancy 
about imagination because um, this is about not having to rush from one thing to another but allowing yourself to just sit around and not do much a wonderful thing to write a poem about mm. and he begins with a quotation from the gospels mm -hmm. um, he gives the last part of it they toil not neither do they spin and Jesus says, consider the lilies of the field. Mm. They toil not, neither yeah. do they spin. Yet even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed as one of these. That's right. So, ode on indolence. They toil not, neither do they spin. One morn before me were three figures seen, with bowed necks and jointed hands, side-faced, and one behind the other stepped serene in placid sandals and in white robes graced. They passed like figures on a marble urn when shifted round to see the other side. They came again, as when the urn once more is shifted round, the first seen shades return, and they were strange to me. As may be tied with vases to one deep Phidian law, how is it, shadows, that I know ye not? How came ye muffled in so hush a mask? Was it a silent, deep, disguised plot To steal away and leave without a task My idle days? Ripe was the drowsy hour, The blissful cloud of summer indolence Benumbed my eyes, my pulse grew less and less. Pain had no sting, and pleasure's wreath no flower. Oh, why did ye not melt, and leave my sense unhaunted, quite of all but nothingness? A third time passed they by, and passing turned, each one the face a moment whiles to me, then faded, and to follow them I burned, and ached for wings, because I knew the three. The first was a fair maid, and love her name. The second was ambition, pale of cheek, and ever watchful with fatigued eye. The last, whom I love more, the more of blame, is heaped upon her. Maiden most unmeek, I knew to be my demon, poesy. They faded, and forsooth, I wanted wings, oh folly, what is love, and where is it? And for that poor ambition it springs from a man's little heart's short fever fit. For poesy, no, she has not a joy, at least for me, so sweet as drowsy noons and evenings steeped in honeyed indolence. Oh, for an age so sheltered from annoy that I may never know how change the moons or hear the voice of busy common sense. A third time came they by, alas, wherefore? My sleep had been embroidered with dim dreams, my soul had been a lawn besprinkled o'er with flowers and stirring shades and baffled beams. The morn was clouded, but no shower fell, though in her lids hung the sweet tears of May, the open casement pressed a new-leaved vine, let in the budding warmth and throstles lay. O oh, shadows, t'was a time to bid farewell upon your skirts, had fallen no tears of mine. So 
Ye three ghosts adieu, ye cannot raise my head cool bedded in the flowery grass, for I would not be dieted with praise. A pet lamb in a sentimental farce, fade softly from my eyes and be once more in mask-like figures on the dreamy urn. Farewell. I yet have visions for the night and for the day, faint visions there is store. Vanish, ye phantoms, from my idle sprite into the clouds and never more return. Yeah, love, ambition and poesy. Get thee gone, because I don't want to do anything. Yeah. <laughs> um, the final poem I'm going to read is a poem written to a woman he fell in love with. They didn't marry. Um, he Both his ill health and, unfortunately, his lack of money meant that marriage was not likely for him. Um, he wouldn't have been able to support a wife, um, which would have been needed then. Um, but the wonderful name of the woman that he fell in love with was Fanny Braun. So, and we've we've tried really hard not to laugh at that. <laughs> I'm managing. <laughs> Mostly. Um, so, yes. And I have taken my fanny pack off. Yes. <laughs> um, I'm going to read um, two extracts extracts sorry, um, from letters um, from Keats some he was writing to um, his brother and I think sister-in-law or maybe to a brother and sister not quite sure um, and describing Miss Braun shall I give you Miss Braun she is about my height with a fine style of countenance of the lengthened sort she wants sentiment in every feature. She manages to make her hair look well. Her nostrils are fine, though a little painful. Her, her mouth is bad and good. Her profile is better than her full face, which indeed is not full, but pale and thin, without showing any bone. Her shape is very graceful, and so are her movements. Her arms are good, her hands baddish, her feet tolerable. She is not seventeen, but she is ignorant, monstrous in her behaviour, flying out in all directions, calling people such names that I was forced lately to make use of the term minx. This is, I think, not from any innate vice, but from a penchant she has for acting stylishly. I am, however, tired of such style, and shall decline any more of it. She had a friend to visit her lately. You have known plenty such. Her face is raw as if she was standing out in a frost. Um, her lips roar and seem always ready for a pullet. And I'm not quite sure what that means. Chicken. Yeah, but I couldn't quite, pick, I couldn't quite fit that into the, the thing. She plays the music without one sensation, but the feel of the ivory at her fingers. She is a downright miss without one, without one set off. We hated her. And I think drove her away. Miss Braun thinks her a paragon of fashion and says she is the only woman she would change persons with. What a stoop. She is superior as a rose to a dandelion. Um, so this is the woman 
who he's falling in love with. Mm. Um, I think it's fair to say, perhaps, that most people, if they were to discover a letter like this, it might put paid to any idea of a further relationship. <laughs> but he does then write a letter to Fanny herself. I'd just like to say that I haven't written any letters to my brothers about you. <laughs> I didn't in even. You were worrying. I I I wasn't even going to go there. Yeah. It was in my mind. And I yeah, thought, no, I I'm, I'm yeah. not going to look at your emails. Yeah. <laughs> I love the idea that he'd rather look at her for the sign. <laughs> Full on. <laughs> and that her feet are tolerable. <laughs> no hands are bandaged. But I look. I, that's great. Her profile is better than her full face. <laughs> I'll only have a look at her side. <laughs> Marvellous. But this is a letter to Fanny. Um, July 1819. I look not forward with any pleasure to what is called being settled in the world. I tremble at domestic cares, yet for you I would meet them. I have two luxuries to brood over in my walks, your loveliness and the hour of my death. Oh, that I could have possession of them both in the same minute. I hate the world. It batters too much the wings of my self-will. And would I could take a sweet poison from your lips to send me out of it. From no others would I take it. I am indeed astonished to find myself so careless of all charms but yours. Remembering as I do the time when even a bit of ribband was a matter of interest with me. What softer words can I find for you after this? What it is I will not read. I am distracted with a thousand thoughts. I will imagine you Venus tonight and pray, pray, pray to your star like a heathen. So at this point, he is clearly in love with her, but also not a happy man. Um, and, and also at this point, um, possibly, I'm trying to think of the, the length of time that he was ill, so his, his health definitely took a, a very bad turn um, in the spring and summer of 1820, but I think at this point he was already struggling with his um, tuberculosis, mm. um, and, and certainly, yeah, obviously he, he's very clear about thoughts of death, but also that he hates the world. It isn't just his ill, physical ill health, but I hate the world. It batters too much the wings of my self-will. Um, so, yeah, a slightly upsetting letter for, for Fanny Braun to receive, I think. At least she didn't say the one to his brother. <laughs> Take your pick, Fanny. Which one would you prefer? So... Well, truth is beauty, remember? <laughs> So she's, so yeah, she's <clears throat> not a paragon of truth then, clearly. No. Not full on anyway, only if you see her from the side. Yeah, very nice from the side. Though <laughs> she's got a bit of a horse face, apparently. <laughs> face is long. Yeah. <laughs> Poor Keats, you, you were a bit of a, I don't know. What's paradox. The, uh, yes, a paradox. Mm -hmm. paradox. And he accepted that about life very much accepted that you don't always have to resolve all the different um, feelings you have about something. Fair enough. So I'm going to read part of this 
um, poem which he wrote um, to Fanny Braun. Um, it's quite long. Also, I think it is quite quite difficult for us nowadays to get much out of. But again, it is one of those that I find beautiful in the reading of it. Um, so if it isn't beautiful in the listening to it, go and read it out yourself and you'll enjoy it more. <laughs> to Fanny. Physician nature, let my spirit blood. O ease my heart of verse and let me rest. Throw me upon thy tripod till the flood of stifling numbers ebbs from my full breast. A theme, a theme, great nature, give a theme, let me begin my dream. I come, I see thee as thou standest there, beckon me out into the wintry air. Ah, dearest love, sweet home of all my fears, and hopes, and joys, and panting miseries. Tonight, if I may guess, thy beauty wears a smile of such delight, as brilliant and as bright as when with ravished, aching vassal eyes, lost in a softer maze, I gaze, I gaze. Who now with greedy looks eats up my feast, what stare at faces now my silver moon? Ah, keep that hand unravished at the least. Let, let the amorous burn, but prithee do not turn the current of your heart from me so soon. Or save in charity the quickest pulse for me. Save it for me, sweet love, though music breathe voluptuous visions into the warm air. Though swimming through the dance's dangerous wreath, be like an April day, smiling and cold and gay, a temperate lily, temperate as fair. Then heaven, there will be a warmer June for me. Hmm. Hmm. So it is, it's quite, you can tell that it's a love poem, but the content is quite obscure, I think, mm. compared to a lot of, of love poems. Yes. It is. However, that is an introduction to John Keats. Mm. I would like, I will um, be very clear about where we've got the things from. So Andrew Motion, um, who also wrote a very, very well-researched and detailed biography of John Keats, about that thick. 25 years. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this is a selection by, published by Faber and Faber, a selection of Keats' poems. Um, very good selection. Also, um, the letter and some of the poems that we read were from this book, which is um, a selection of his letters and poems. And I think the letters are a really interesting insight into him. Um, an interesting character, perhaps not very easy to get on with, but, you know, that can go for all of us, really, can't it? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I'm John Atak. I'm Ursula Wake. Thanks for watching. Thank you. <laughs>